Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezra tonight. Ezra chapter 5 is where we are in our study here on Wednesday evenings. And we're going to look at chapter 5 and chapter 6. Not going to read the entire uh, portion here at the beginning, but I do want to read a select uh, section uh, in chapter 5 as well as chapter 6. So Ezra uh, chapter 5, and uh, let's begin at verse uh, number 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, uh, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethrar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Now, this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethrar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, to Darius the king, all peace, be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Go down, if you will, to verse 17. Uh, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in the matter. Now, moving to chapter 6, go down to verse 6 of chapter 6. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethrar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do to these elders or what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue and tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, ram, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priest at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. 
And according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province, beyond the river, Shethrar, Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of the God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And on the 14th day of the first month, they returned exiles, kept the Passover, For the priest and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the return exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And had returned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Well, back in chapter 4, we saw that the work of rebuilding the temple came to a pause. Just as soon as the Jews rebuilt the altar of God and then proceeded to begin laying the foundation for the temple, their adversaries show up. People of the land who were not true worshipers of God began to discourage and frustrate their purpose. The opposition was so strong, if you'll remember, so effective that they literally stopped construction. In verse 24 of chapter 4, it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of of Darius, king of Persia. You know, seasons of opposition can be very dangerous for us spiritually. In addition to leaving us discouraged, frustrated, and afraid, it can ultimately cause us to become idle. You see, from this time that the work stopped until the second year of King Darius, it was approximately 16 years, 16 years of no progress, 16 years of no work for the Lord on the house of God, 16 years of idleness. You know, throughout Scripture, there is warning after warning after warning about the danger of idleness and the opportunity for sin that idleness easily brings into our lives. J.C. Ryle said it like this, Truly, I believe that idleness 
has led to more sin than almost any other habit that could be named. It is the mother of many sins of the flesh, the mother of adultery, sexual immorality, drunkenness, and many other deeds of darkness. Let your own conscience say whether I speak the truth or not. You were once idle, and immediately the devil knocked at the door and came in. And that's exactly what happened. Opposition came against the people of God. And discouragement, fear, and frustration gave way to idleness. I mean, why keep on when all we're going to hear is this noise from our enemies? This is discouraging. This is frustrating. What if they do more than talk and actually come against us and try to take our lives? Is it worth it? Well, at that moment to them, it wasn't. And so they stopped. They stopped the work. And for 16 years, there was nothing happening in their service to the Lord. Now, if you remember when they first came back, they were filled with excitement. God had stirred their hearts to go and rebuild the temple. But now, that original excitement of faithful service had waned. And lethargy had settled in. But here's what our text shows us. When the people of God experience times of spiritual decline, the people of God in Ezra chapter 5 and the people of God in this room tonight. When the people of God experience times of spiritual decline and lethargy, God uses the preaching of his word to revive our hearts in faithfulness to him and in faithfulness to his church. It's actually extremely interesting. We read it just a moment ago, and unless you're watching intently, you may not even have even picked up on the phrase. Chapter 6, verse 14. It says that they prospered through the prophesying. In other words, they prospered through the preaching. How did they gain success? How did they finish the temple? How did they pick up and get going again? They prospered through preaching. They needed the preaching of God's word, not just to return their focus to God, but to keep their focus on God and his will for their life. And the scripture is clear that we all need preaching. We all need, as God's people, the regular preaching of God's word to both instruct us and correct us. That's what Paul told Timothy to preach the word for. Preach the word. Instruct them in righteousness. Correct them of their error. Preach the We need the preaching of God's word. It is the routine diet of faithful Bible exposition in our life that will build our spiritual health and keep us gospel-focused. They prospered through preaching. Notice what preaching did in this season of spiritual decline in their lives. 16 years of idleness, and then God sends some preachers. And notice with me, number one, the preaching of the word awakened them. The preaching of the word awakened them. We see this in verses 1 and 2. In fact, verse 1 says there were two prophets that God sent, Haggai and Zechariah. 
Now, Haggai and Zechariah, their, their ministries were so important that their most impactful sermons are recorded as their own books within the canon of Scripture. You can flip forward just a few books into the minor prophets, and you're going to find the book of Haggai. You're going to find the book of Zechariah. Uh, these sermons that they preached to the Jewish exiles who had returned during this exact moment between Ezra 4, 5, and 6 is what's recorded for us in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah. After 16 years of idleness and no progress on the temple, God sends these two men to preach his word, to, to proclaim his word to this group of idle, lethargic Jews. To... to things and brevity that I want you to notice about their preaching. And then I, I do want to encourage you that uh, over maybe some time in our study in Ezra that you go back and read Haggai and Zechariah so that you can understand all the intent of their preaching and how it motivated them. The first thing I wrote down here is that Haggai's message from God challenged their mindset. Haggai's message from God uh, challenge their mindset. In fact, uh, hold your place there in Ezra 4 and just turn over to Haggai chapter 1 for just a moment. Haggai chapter number 1, and I want us to see at least a good portion of the first chapter so you can see what Haggai did in his preaching to them during this time of idleness. He challenged their mindset. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shitil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. All right, here's why I'm sending you. I'm sending you because they have said the time's not right. They have said, we, we can't really build right now. You see, the spiritual decline of the people of God during this 16-year period was due in part to their procrastination. They had convinced themselves that they were waiting for the right time to build. So God says, I want you, Haggai, to go to these people who say that now's not the right time. And that the reason why we haven't been involved in the work of the Lord the last 16 years is because, well, we just haven't had time to get to it. But when the time opens itself up, we will build. Those are the people I want you to go and I want you to preach to. And here's what I want you to tell them. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While the houses lie in ruins? You, you, you say it's not time to serve the Lord. Well, is it time for you to start living it up and doing what you want to do and programming your entire schedule after your own self-interest while the house of God is fleeting? Is that what it's time for? Consider your ways, he says, verse 5. You've sold much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
It's got to be a bummer, doesn't it? Keegan was feeling sick today. I was staying home with him, working while Kathleen was here, and he'd done good all day. He threw up a couple of times in the middle of the night, just how it is with a large family. About every week and a half, somebody's throwing up something. And, uh, and so he'd done fairly well today, and then on the way to church tonight, immediately when we pull out of the neighborhood, I'm not feeling so good. Uh, Keegan, you're going to be sick? I think so. My head hurts and my stomach is rumbling. I look at Kathleen. I said, do we have a bag? Just in case, you know. She said, I got one. She gives it to him. Daddy, this bag has a hole in it. Well, that's not going to do us a lot of good, is it? Right? I mean, this is, this is what he's saying here. You go out and you work yourself to death. You bring in all of this money, all this material stuff, and you're just putting it in a bag with a hole. It's like you have it one minute, it's gone the next. You see, their spiritual decline, what he's saying here, was not only a reflection of procrastination, it was also a reflection of priorities. Priorities that never brought them true satisfaction. They were sowing, but they weren't harvesting anything. They were drinking, but they never felt satisfied. They were eating, but they were always hungry. They had all this clothes, but they, but, but, but they, were, they were always cold making all this money, but no peace. You see, their priorities did not bring them satisfaction. And instead of putting God and his work first in the building of the temple, they put themselves first. And all along the way, they still never had any happiness. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. It's an interesting phrase that he says over and over again. It's something that we ought to evaluate every time we hear the preaching of God's word. God is saying, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider who you are and what you're doing in relation to the message of God's word. Consider your ways tonight, church family. Evaluate what you're doing, church family. Consider your ways, he says, verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. That's what God's saying to them. You spent all your time trying to build something out of yourself, out of your family. And, and God said, you know what I did? The reason it's gone is because I took it away. I blew it away. Why? Continue reading there. Verse 9, why? Because of my house. Because of your relationship to my house, I blew all that stuff away that you thought would make you happy. Because of my house. My house, it lies in ruins while each of you busied himself with his own house. So busy with your own house. So busy with your own work. So busy with all your self-interest. You don't have time for my house and that's the reason why you're not happy because I'm taking it all away from you. It's a challenging thought. Because he goes on to say that that's the reason why there's a famine in the land. That's a reason why there's a drought. You see, their emptiness, their unhappiness, it was the result of spiritual lethargy. But through the preaching of God's word, we come to verse 12, they woke up. They woke up. The word awakened them to repentance, and the word awakened them to return to his work. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shitil, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Verse 14, 
And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. You see, God had to send a preacher to preach a sermon to challenge their way of thinking, to challenge their mindset. All that procrastination, all those mixed up priorities, all that living for themselves while their relationship with the house of God was desolate. And then he sends another preacher, Zechariah. Haggai's message challenged their mindset. Zechariah's message renewed their hope. Again, you're in Haggai. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 1. Now, we're not going to read a lot of Zechariah. In fact, there's 14 chapters in Zechariah. He was a long-winded preacher. Uh, Zechariah Blankenship was his name. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 1, he renewed their hope. Look at it there in verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Beersheba, son of Edu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. That was the opening introduction of his sermon to the Jewish people. Hey, your dads ticked God off. The whole reason you were in exile was because your fathers were doing exactly what you're doing right now. So you want to go back to that? You, you want to go back in that exile because everything that your dads did and your granddads did, that's what got you in trouble in the first place. And here you are. You're just repeating the same cycle. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. That was his message. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. Return to me. And I will return to you. You see, like Haggai, Zechariah delivers a message of repentance. But then when you step back, and again, we don't have time to do it. When you look at all 14 chapters of Zechariah, you'll see that his sermon was filled with a vision for the future. Specifically about the coming of the Messiah. For the rest of chapter 1, all the way through the end of chapter 4, it's this long vision about the coming of the Christ. Now, why would he be preaching to them about the coming of the Christ when what he needs to be telling them is to get up and get back to work? Well, because it all works together. It is our vision of Christ that motivates everything we do or do not do for God and his house. You see, he's reminding this group of Jews about the greater purpose of their obedience to God, that their obedience contributes to the promised coming of the Messiah. So, so it gave them hope in not only returning to the Lord through repentance, but in trusting the Lord's promise through them as a people. The point of all of this is that these two preachers spoke the word of God. And the preaching of God's word awakened their lethargy and it returned them to the building of the temple. Go back to Ezra now, all right? We're going back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, Then Serubbabel, the son of Shitil, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Verse 1 and 2 tells us everything we need to know. Everything we need to know. They preached, that is, they prophesied to the Jews. They preached what God told them, what God told them, their authority. They answered to God alone. That is, they preached to the Jews in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then they continued to preach as their presence remained with them in the work. It's really fascinating because it says that as they were preaching to them, 
the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I think it's just a subtle reminder of how much God's people need both the presence and the preaching of preachers in their life. This wasn't televised in. They were there constantly encouraging them with the word of God, supporting them with the word of God, preaching to them on the days that they wanted to give up, reminding them of what God's message was to them. Again, it's such a reminder of why you and I need to gather together as often as we can week after week to hear the preaching of God's word because the preaching of God's word is the alarm clock that wakes us up when we find ourselves falling to sleep spiritually. The preaching of God's word awakened them. 16 years of spiritual decline and idleness God brought some preachers, they preached, they got back to work. All right, number two, the preaching of the word prospered them. The preaching of the word prospered them. Well, more intimidation came against the people just like it did 16 years prior to this. We are introduced to a man by the name of uh, Tatanai. He's the governor over that province for the Persian Empire. And he grew very concerned about the rebuilding of the temple. Look at verse 3. He asked them, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Well, you might think, well, sh- shouldn't he know? But remember, a lot of time's passing. 16 years have gone by, and we have a new king. King Cyrus is the one who sent them. King Cyrus is dead and gone. Now we have King Darius. And perhaps the very fact that he's asking this question after there was idleness by the Jewish people, I mean, it means he was probably a new leader, a new governor. He'd not seen the Jewish people do anything. And all of a sudden, they get in their cars and they go to church, and, 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 and they've got his attention. And so here, here they are. They, they started the work. They don't know anything about this. They haven't seen any of this going on. And he says, who, who gave you permission to build this house? The intimidation grew because you'll find out even in the next verse that the governor requested the names of everyone who was at work on the building as if to threaten them. We want names. Tell us the names of everybody who's helping you do this, who's working on the building. But what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that God was protecting them. And although they were being intimidated, he didn't allow any harm to come against them. Tatanai, however, did write a letter. And I don't know what it is about all these problem people in their letters that they write, but here's another one. They write a letter, send an email to King Darius, about the building of the temple. And that's what verses 6 through 17 of chapter 5 is all about. It's all about this letter that Tatanai sends. Let me summarize it for you. Tatanai says, King Darius, I want you to know that these Jews are building something. And it's huge. It's big. It's the biggest stones I've ever seen put on a building. And, and I'm afraid that something's up. In fact, verse 8, he said, these Jews may take over and incite a revolt against you. And I'm writing this letter to you so that you will know what they're doing and that you'll know that their work is prospering. I mean, it's getting along fairly well. They're not letting up. They're showing no signs of quit. They're going strong. And so I I want you to know that I went and asked them. I went and asked them, who gave them permission to do this? And they told me that King Cyrus gave them permission. King Cyrus wrote a decree that allowed them to build this temple. 
And then at the end of the letter, he says to King Darius, Tatanai that is, we want to know if this is true. And if it is true, do you approve? Now that you're the king, do you approve of what they're doing? Well, King Darius goes and he finds the decree and he finds it written by King Cyrus everything that Cyrus had told them. And it's quite an interesting response. The response comes in the first 15 verses of chapter 6. Again, let me summarize it for you. The first thing that King Darius says when he replies to Tatanai's email is this. Number one, stay away and leave them alone. Stay away and leave them alone. Verse 6 of chapter 6. If you're following along with me, if you're not, just let them stay asleep. Verse 6 says, keep away, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Leave them alone. Stay away from them. Not only does he tell them to leave leave them alone and stay away from them, but you come to verse 4 and he says, look, we'll pay the cost in full for building the temple without delay and we'll do it out of the governmental treasury. Now, isn't this amazing? Because now we see portions of the government coming against the people of God, hoping to shut them down. But then it gets turned right back on them. Because in their efforts to try to shut the work of God down, they actually discover something that we haven't seen yet. Now remember, when King Cyrus sent the Jewish people back to Jerusalem to build the temple, he sent them with goods. But it wasn't out of the governmental treasury. It was the goods of the people who had stayed behind who could have returned with them. A tax, if you will. He also sent with them all of the items that were originally stolen from the temple that King Nebuchadnezzar took when he invaded the Jewish people. But now we see a little statement that King Cyrus put in, but it seems never got enacted on, which in verse 4 tells us that the decree actually says the cost is to be paid from the royal treasury. So, Tatanai is hoping to write this letter to shut them down. Darius goes, finds the decree, and says, oh, not only are we not going to shut them down, we actually were supposed to be doing something that we haven't done yet. We're supposed to be paying for the whole project out of the royal treasury. And so he tells Tatanai in verse 8 of chapter 6, the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. Well, which one? Which royal revenue? Oh, this is getting even better. Look at this. Here's the revenue it's going to come from. The tribe of the province from beyond the river. Well, whose region is that? Tatanai's region. So Cyrus didn't specify which fund it needed to come out, out of. So Darius makes an executive decision. We're going to pay for the temple out of your fund. So all those roads that are so important to you, which were, this is really a battle of, 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 of all of this architectural things doing by the government and the Persian Empire. He says, all that money you've been spending building these roads and trying to expand your kingdom, you have to put that to the stop. Because now all that money is going to go to finishing the house of God. And whatever they need, verse 9, let that be given to them every day without fail. It's amazing. And then one more time in case they, you know, Have some second thoughts. He tells them, verse 11, think twice about getting in their way. This is what Darius is telling Tatanai, verse 11. Also, I make a decree, here's the law, that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. 
and his house will be made a dunghill. Think twice before you mess with the people of God. Let them do what they're supposed to do. And verse 14 says that the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying. They prospered through the prophesying. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. So once again, we see that it is the ministry of the word that brings success. It is the ministry of the word that brings true prosperity in our lives. And that's all in scripture, isn't it? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God, in the word of God. He loves it. He loves to read it. He loves to memorize it. He loves to meditate on it. Oh, he loves to hear it preach. And because his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night, he is like a tree planted by the streams of water. It yields fruit. Its leaf does not wither. And everything he does prospers. Why does everything he does prosper? Because he loves the word of God. Because he's committed to the word of God. He loves to hear the word of God. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, it shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it every day and every night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Can we simply agree tonight that the word of God is clear as illustrated here in Ezra that a prosperous life And a prosperous work is a life committed to the word of God. Sixteen years prior to this, back in chapter four, sixteen years to them, just one week for us, last week, they allowed opposition to stop them. But now their focus is in the right place. Their focus is on the word. They know how much they need the word. And it was the preaching of the word that kept them going, even though the governor was doing all he could to once again stop them. Well, let me give you this third one and we'll be finished. The preaching of the word brought them joy. The preaching of the word brought them joy. This is verse 16 through 22 of Ezra. In fact, let me just read it for you. The little phrase in verse 22, it says, The Lord made them joyful. The Lord made them joyful. And he made them joyful through the ministry of his word. Again, Jeremiah talks about how much the word of God brought his own life joy. In Jeremiah 15, 16, he said, your words became to me the joy and the delight of my heart. The joy and the delight of my heart. What is tonight the joy and the delight of your heart? The word of God brought them joy. And you see several things that are happening here. In verse 16, we see this joy came because of fulfilled promises. Fulfilled promises. Verse 16 says the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the return exiles, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Joy. So the word of God brought them joy because they saw the promises of God fulfilled. He said, I'm going to send you back. It was prophesied. I'm going to send you back. And you're going to rebuild the temple of God that was destroyed. And they did. And it brought their life joy when they saw the promises of God 
coming to pass right before their very eyes. You see, every day of our lives, we see the promises of God fulfilled for us. And that ought to bring us joy. Joy, the joy of fulfilled promises. The joy of reconciled sinners. Verse 18 says that they set the priests in their division and the Levites in their divisions. Why? For the service of God at Jerusalem, as it's written in the book of Moses. In other words, atonement sacrifices are now returned. The temple's finished and all the bulls and goats and lambs and animals, the altar's in its place. The temple, the holy of all, everything's put in place. The Levites are where they need to be and the priests are where they need to be. Guess what? It's back to the sacrificial system, which for us no longer exists, but for them meant everything as it related to the atonement of sin and their reconciliation with God. It's just a reminder that when we look to the Word of God, it brings us joy because we know it's in the Word that we are reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the joy of obedient holiness. The joy of obedient holiness. They're celebrating because God had fulfilled His promises. They're rejoicing because now atonement can be made once again after 70 years of exile and then another 16 years of idleness. And now, now they're experiencing true happiness. You see, because they were living for themselves, right? Procrastinating. Their priorities were all messed up. The busyness of their own homes while the house of God and their relationship with it was non-existent. But now it's changed. They've become obedient. And through their obedience, they've become a holy people again. Verse 21. It's very important. Notice they separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. The feast of the unleavened bread was just a picture. It was a picture of proper holiness to God. And so here we, hear, here we have holiness bringing joy. The truth is I could preach a whole message on holiness just from verse 21. The very fact that the purpose of holiness is for our worship to the Lord. Our holiness is not because of what we want to do to impress others. Our holiness is not because we just want to stay away from certain people. No, our holiness is because of our worship to the Lord. We are living sacrifices that are to be holy to God. And that is our spiritual worship. Our worship. All of that's taking place here. And what does it bring? It brings joy. Satan gives us a bag of lies, doesn't he? Now, if you commit yourself that much to the church, you're going to be one unhappy person. If you separate yourself that much unto God, how much fun are you going to have? You're never going to be able to enjoy the things you want to enjoy and so on and so forth. But over and over again, we see that true holiness brings joy. Can I just say this before we pray? You don't have to make a choice between happiness and holiness. I've heard it said on many occasions through the years, God is more concerned about your holiness than he is your happiness. He's concerned about both. He's concerned about both, and you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose happiness or holiness. Holiness is the way to happiness. 
Holiness is the way to happiness. And the way of holiness is through obedience to God's word. The preaching of the word brought them joy because they obeyed it. They saw its promises. They saw that through it, they were reconciled to God through the sacrifices. Well, church family, we need the preaching of God's word. In the context of preaching, Paul said it like this in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13. He said, I thank God constantly that when you received the word of God, that is when you heard the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, watch this, which is at work in you who believe. He's saying the preaching of God's word is at work in those who believe. The question tonight is, is the word of God at work in you? Is the word of God at work in you? For it works in believers. And it works in believers who hear it preached. And we take that thought home with us tonight from Ezra. They prospered through preaching. Let's bow our heads for prayer together.